Hello, everybody, and welcome to Sake Revolution. This is America's first sake podcast. I'm your host, John Puma from the Sake Notes, the admin over at the Internet Sake Discord, and the guy on the show who is definitely not a sake samurai. And I am your host, Timothy Sullivan. I am a sake samurai. I am also a sake educator, as well as the founder of the Urban Sake website. And every week, John and I will be tasting and chatting about all things sake and doing our best to make it fun and easy to understand. That's right, Tim. That's what we do every single week. Yeah. So, John, I had a question for you. Have Mm. you ever been by yourself? Have you ever been a guest on someone else's podcast before? Mm, I was a guest on a podcast with you once, but that yes. was a, that's a different thing. Not, not yeah. by myself now. Yeah. Well, I, I have to say I had the good fortune to be on a really fabulous podcast as a guest, not once, but mm-hmm. twice. And I'm mm-hmm. talking about Japan eats. Have you ever heard of it? Uh, so wait, before I go into that, is this, this is a flex, right? Yes. This is a total flex. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, but, uh, yes, I am familiar and I've actually heard, uh, at least one of the episodes that you were on. Excellent. Well, Mm -hmm. I am excited to tell you, John, that we have none other than Akiko Katayama with us today. She is the host of the Japan Eats podcast. And let me give a little introduction to Akiko. She's a food writer and a Forbes columnist based in New York City. And since May 2015, she's been the host of the very well-known Japan Eats podcast. It's also a weekly radio show on the Heritage Radio Network. And there she introduces Japanese food, sake, and culture to an audience all around the world. She's also the director of the nonprofit, the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deeper understanding of Japanese cuisine in the U.S., And she's worked as a culinary advisor to the Japanese government. She's consulted for companies in the food and beverage industry. And she has also been on TV. She served as a judge on the uh, Iron Chef on the Food Network. And she's also been on Netflix original The Final Table. And of course, she's also the author of A Complete Guide to Japanese Cuisine, which is a fabulous book for getting a great introduction to Japanese cuisine. So we are so excited to have Akiko with us today. Akiko, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. What a fabulous introduction. Is it about me? <laughs> yes. Tim, that was, that, was, that was wonderful. That was stunning. I'm, I'm kind of stuck on the Iron Chef bit, but I know. What but was, still. What was it like to be on TV? Was that nerve-wracking for you? No, I think it's that, you know, the whole lighting and everything, you just decide that you are there and you enjoy the moment. So, yeah, it's just that you just you are in a dreamland. So you don't get nervous. (laughs) (laughs) Akiko-san, I have to ask you, this is a question that you always ask on your podcast, but where are you from and what did you eat growing up? That's my favorite question. So (laughs) (laughs) I had to I had to throw it back at you. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm from Tokyo and I grew up in, in the suburb of Tokyo. And then actually I looked up where it's I grew up as like now on Google map, I cannot recognize anything, but I grew up in a kind of <laughs> suburb and nice, very natural environment. I could take a walk to the river. I would fish with my dad and kind of like really Tokyo, like Tokyo life until I grew up. And uh, so the funny thing is I didn't like Japanese food when I grew up <laughs> at all. Huh. <laughs> At all? At none all? Of it? None. So, huh. 
I was like a black sheep. Everybody else, my brother, my parents, they all only ate Japanese food or Japanese style Western food. But I was always looking for something non Japanese. So that's crazy, right? What I'm doing. What was, your, <laughs> what was your favorite food? What was your favorite non Japanese food that you, you liked to eat as a kid? And also, I, I didn't like eating when I grew up. So, I, <laughs> so, so, I so this, is a, this is a broader situation, not just about <laughs> Japanese food, but just food in general. <laughs> right. So I was so picky and I was always eating ice cream, chocolate, mm. and uh, something like... Sounds good to me. I know. But yeah, it's not like a proper food that I was eating. <laughs> And you turned out to be a culinary expert. That's we got to dig deeper into this for sure. <laughs> yeah, you can do one of the episode for that. I had a long journey. <laughs> so then, at, at some point, you you decide you liked food, and you started your own Japanese cuisine radio show and podcast. As Tim mentioned back in 2015, Japan Eats. How did that all get started? So I've been working already as a writer. And, um, you know, Japanese cuisine has been becoming increasingly popular, I think, over the last decades. And just because I'm Japanese, people started to ask me a lot of questions about Jap Japanese food. And then I found a huge demand for proper and um, accurate information about Japanese food. And, and then I casually spoke to one of my friends at the Heritage Radio Network, and it happened to be that they're looking for a native Japanese person who can do a show. So there they are. That was the beginning of the show six years ago now. Wow. Did you have any experience being on the radio or doing podcasting? Or was it all new to you when you started in 2015? Uh, no, nothing. And I, you know, English is not my, my first language. So... It's crazy. I was just like half joking and I never imagined that's going to happen. Wow. Well, you have such a wide variety of guests. You know, you have people who do tea ceremony and fish importing and sake people and all different types of guests. How do you find such a wide variety of guests all related to Japanese culture and cuisine? Mm, so it's very random and intuitive and also driven by... Uh, the fear uh, due to a scarcity of potential guests. So <laughs> whenever I find somebody interesting that really intrigues me, um, I just contact the person and a book right away. I could find uh, interesting people in the media or it can be suggested by uh, show guests, other show listeners. The first time I started the show, I thought my expectation was that I could just do a show for only a week, a uh, year, because I thought I would run out guests who can who knows Japanese cuisine and can speak English. But surprise, surprise, I was able to find a lot of people, great uh, Japanese related people like Tim, for example. <laughs> so I have a long list now, but I am uh, really blessed to be able to find so many amazing people who are interested in Japanese cuisine. So uh, you mentioned that you cover you know, Japanese cuisine and sometimes sake and some other uh, topics along those lines are related. Um, what are your favorite topics to cover on the show? Mm. And please tell me it's sake. <laughs> of 
course. Sake is, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sake, of course, is interesting. And I know I tell you why because I'm looking for interesting stories behind each topic. Sake, for example, it can be about the family history or type of koji. And how the koji can produce interesting flavors to, you know, why this uh, brewery decided to be organic or something very um, personal and uh, way beyond a glass of sake. So each time I prepare a show, for a show, it's uh, always like reading a book. There's so many interesting stories about the person. So it's hard to say which one is my favorite, which one is not. I have to say, each time I'm reading a great book, that's how I feel. Yeah, that's really cool. <laughs> like that. Yeah, so it does make it more compelling when you dig behind the scenes a little bit. It's not just the technical side of Koji, but about the family history, like you said. That's really wonderful. Now, you've been a consultant and an advisor and author about all things Japanese cuisine for a while. And I know you're personally a fan of Japanese sake. We've met at many sake events here in New York City <laughs> over the years. How would you say, from your point of view as a culinary expert, how would you say the sake market has changed over the last 10 years in the United States? Mm. So, as you know, the Japanese sake industry has been declining for many reasons, like, uh, you know, hard work, younger people not drinking sake anymore, and all those many reasons. But the overseas market is growing so fast, thanks to um, hardworking sake brewers who are really aware of the importance of outside market. And also, of course, experts like you guys who really educate people how to drink sake, why sake is so delicious and enjoyable. I learned that in 2020, the biggest sake export market is Hong Kong, China, and the number three is America. It's 20% of the total export mm -hmm. by value. So yeah. we are drinking yeah. more better sake as well over time. And uh, well, that's one thing. The sake market is really more sophisticated in America. And also, I'm always excited to see uh, new American breweries in America, you know, like the sake breweries uh, that are really producing high-quality sake. So, for example, I had, uh, you know, Brooklyn Kura and uh, Kato Sake Works in New York and also the North American Sake Brewery in Virginia. And those, uh, I think there are over two dozens of sake breweries in America. And just like... Uh, sushi you know the california walls were created in, in california by i think american uh, japanese entrepreneur actually to target wide border market who could be interested in sushi and now people don't mind paying a couple hundred dollars per person for authentic edomai style sushi so mm -hmm. i see that what's happening here could be um, the same path to popularity of sushi. Sushi is now part of American diet. So, yeah, mm -hmm. I feel so excited because American sake breweries, both, they are both creating authentic style of sake as well as something very uh, terroir-driven American style of sake. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
actually a really good point about the evolution of sushi in the American kind of mind frame. I think if you go back to like the mid nineties and you say sushi to somebody and they think it's just this bizarre exotic thing. Oh my God, cold fish. That's horrifying. Like it was the, the attitude on it back then was completely different than it is now. And it's been such an interesting thing to see that change uh, relatively quickly, at least in my eyes, even though it's, it's like 25 years, <laughs> but uh, it's, it's still been like, it's still a complete, uh, you know, 180 as far as uh, how Americans view sushi. But back to the sake topic for a moment, you've had a lot of sake related content on the show. You mentioned having Brooklyn Kura and Kato Sake Works on and North American Sake. What is your personal experience with sake uh, and, and what, what kind of sake do you like? What styles do you go for? So first time, I would say my first memory about sake is that my, my dad loved sake. So, mm. But I was never interested in drinking sake myself. And then I, I left Japan and then I started to be more interested in alcoholic beverages. First time I was really interested in alcoholic beverage was uh, wine. And when the first time I had Chablis, like, what is that? Then I, I studied you know, wine and visited wineries and breweries and those things. Yeah. So by learning how it's made, who it's making, the whole understanding of what you put in your mouth changes, right? So the same thing happened to my mind when I started working with Japanese uh, local governments and then started visiting sake breweries and uh, spoke to those people. It was fascinating. So I really... I think it's a, based on my wine knowledge, it's, it's interesting to compare. And I appreciate sake because of my wine knowledge. Because it's like there's some common way to analyze taste, which is not common in Japanese sake community, because mm. you don't analyze as much as Western style wine analysis. Unfortunately, my dad passed away two years ago, but we. Since then, I started being really into sake. I would go back to Japan and always share a bottle of nice sake. And uh, we really enjoyed drinking sake together. Yeah. So for you, wine was actually the way to get into the world of sake. You studied wine first and then came back around and discovered sake through that? Yeah, that is correct. Yeah. Wow. Hmm. Wow. So what are your... When you're having alone time, no business, nobody around, <laughs> uh, when you're enjoying sake at home with your friends and family, what are your styles that you gravitate towards? Mm, when it comes to tasting something, I'm very adventurous and curious. So I tend <laughs> to try something I've never tried before. And mm -hmm. But also I, I, so people call me oyaji. Oyaji means old man. <laughs> I tend to prefer something like dry and savory. So if I had to pick one flavor profile, it tends to be dry and savory. Hmm. There's a there's a bar that I've gone to in Tokyo called Ganko Oyaji, <laughs> which means like that's, I think it means stubborn old man. Yeah, yeah, stubborn old man. I, I think, think that's a bar for you. I, <laughs> I think so. <laughs> That is, a, that is a lovely bar, by the way. It is. Well, we all can go back to Japan again. We'll, we'll yeah. all meet. Oh, wow. Let's meet at Ganko Oyaji. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's do it. <laughs> all right. And speaking of sake and Oyaji-style sake, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, we let Akiko choose the sake we're going to drink today, and it is uh, Kenbishi Honjozo. So we're digging into digging our heels into that that Oyaji territory a little bit there, I think. Tim, do you want to go a little bit more in depth on this? Yeah, let me just introduce the sake to our listeners, Akiko, and then we'll pour some out and start tasting. So this is, as John just mentioned, a honjozo. So honjozo is that alcohol-added style of sake. This is from Kenbishi Sake Brewery in Hyogo Prefecture, which is one of the main, main regions for sake. It's got between 16 and 17% alcohol, a very low SMB of 0.5, and then higher acidity, 1.7. And the rice that they use for this sake is Ayama and Yamada Nishiki, both milled to 70% remaining. So not a very fine milling rate. All right. Mm. So I'm going to pour this into my wine glass. Oh, it's yellow. A little bit, yeah. One other thing I want to mention, Akiko, is that this brand introduces themselves as the oldest brand in Japan. Hmm. On the label, John, look on the label. Doesn't it say oldest brand? It does say oldest brand. And I'm about to answer my own question. I was going to say, well, how old? Um, It says since 1505. Hmm. Yes. So So the the logo they use for the Kenbishi brand looks like a shield. It's like a black, solid black mark that looks kind of like a medieval shield shape. And they've been using that logo since the 1500s. Wow. Wow. So that's, that's something amazing. Okay, so I have this poured. And Akiko, I think you brought the sake in, uh, you got the one cup, right? The sake cup? Uh, yeah, actually, I chose this one because what I heard is this one an award for design award in Japan in 2008. Mm. And the thing is that it's, 180 milliliters, which is very small, and it's appealing to younger generations whenever they're interested in sake, and it's very fashionable. And you can use it after you empty this, you can use it as a tokuri, which is a you know serving vessel. And it's really cute. And I heard uh, the heat distribution is really uh, functional because of this shape. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like a you know, yeah. bigger shoulder shape in a small bottle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I thought it was very smart. Yeah. Well, if I started making sake in 15 something and I had to wait until 2018 to win a design award, I might be a little upset, but But better late than never, right? Of course not. It's like you can do anything, (laughs) even now. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, John, you have your sample poured? I do have it poured, uh, slightly chilled, uh, and then... Yeah. I believe we are also going to do something a little warm, right? Yeah, so let's try right. the sample uh, chilled first. I have mine sure in a thing. wine glass. You can see the color. It's got a nice light straw color. Mm-hmm. Very lovely. Almost looks like a white wine. Yeah, it's like a Sauvignon Blanc kind of greener. Color, right? right? Like yeah, pale yeah. green. Yeah. Well, let's give it a smell. Wow. Mm. Wow. So I don't mean this in a derogatory way, but this smells cheesy. Cheesy. <laughs> it smells like a little bit of like a little bit of a cheese rind or something like that mm. for me. Definitely. Mm. Very deep fermentation aroma. Right. 
Yes. And it's very ricey, like. Ricey, yeah. Very much. And there's a lot of it. It is not subtle. It is not <laughs> uh, in any way. When we're talking about rice and cheese as being some of the things that we smell on this, mm. uh, definitely, definitely in your face. Mm. But interesting, like right after that, there's like a, I don't know, like citrusy or some uh, mm. like a elderberry, like hint of some uh, refreshing elderberry, like gin. So it's kind of get mm. balanced as that. Botanicals. Out. Yeah. yeah. Like a botanical, yeah. Yeah. Once you said gin, I was like, and my eyes lit up. I'm like, that's, yes, that's exactly what it is. <laughs> uh, Kiko-san, that wine training is coming in handy. Yeah, right. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's give it a taste. Mm. Wow. Mm. Lots of umami. Very mm-hmm. savory. Wow. Almost like soy sauce. Right? Yeah. Oh, my God. My cheek hurts. It's so much. <laughs> 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 and we, we've, we've talked before about like sakes being like the fruit bomb. This is the umami mm. bomb. This is the umami bomb. Yes. Mm. Very savory, warming, umami rich. Mm-hmm. Think about soy sauce flavors, miso flavors. Mm. Um, this would pair so well with um, <laughs> so many things in Japanese cuisine mm. because of that, that dashi umami flavor. Do you know it. how you name that? flavor it's called the uh, kokumi kokumi is a kokumi. yeah it's a the sixth mm. flavor after umami so sweet salty bitter sour umami and then there's kokumi which means richness like it typically you have very rich dashi you know japanese style mm. stock it's like mm-hmm. a richness and a deep beyond umami depth that's called kokumi and I, I think it's going to be the terminology in the culinary world very soon. <laughs> oh, my gosh. This is breaking news. <laughs> <laughs> I like this, Tim. We're, we're, news we're flash. ahead. <laughs> There's a new flavor. <laughs> I did not know that. Yeah. Kokumi. Kokumi, yeah. Wow. Okay. So this is an example of kokumi. Indeed. Mm. Kind of like ultra-rich ultra umami. Right. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow. I love it. Kokumi bomb. and tim as you implied this is um this would go so really so well with food i think this is begging for food uh it is so just ready to be uh to be drunk alongside something really nice and rich that's going to complement it wonderfully yeah akiko do you have any ideas for food pairings with this sake at this temperature kind of slightly chilled or room temperature um this one hmm i would think roast chicken mm. Mm. yeah that's a, that sounds great i was thinking of oden mm. Mm. so oden is something i discovered in japan they sell it in convenience stores it's on the counter <laughs> And when I first saw it, I said, what's that brown food? <laughs> they, soak, they soak all kinds of delicious nibbles in like a soy sauce broth and it turns everything brown, whether it's mm-hmm. daikon or eggs. And it, it infuses these uh, kind of more neutral flavors with uh, delicious umami, brown color, and kind of a savoriness. Mm. And, and you eat it um, almost like a, like a chunky stew, like you put pieces on a 
plate and there's a little sauce in there too. I think that would go great with this. What do you think? It sounds like it would work. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Hey, I think uh, because Oden has different ingredients and this could be Mm. the kind of, you know, binder that connects every Mm -hmm. single piece of them. Yeah. Mm. Uh, For me, I just keep thinking like late night izakaya. (laughs) <laughs> and like that kind of food like the, the kind of food you get at like after last train in japan style like late night izakaya like one in the morning right you're you're get, you're eating stuff that's a little bit greasier but but yeah still like um you know maybe kushikatsu mm. <laughs> yeah. yum <laughs> yeah that's definitely uh, oyaji moment yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And John, I have to remind our listeners that one of my New Year's resolutions was to drink outside my comfort zone. And I think that because of Akiko's suggestion, we're going there. Tim, we can't see your comfort zone from here. (laughs) (laughs) I'm trained to love clean and crisp and light sake. And this is the polar opposite, but Mm. it's so delicious and so rich. And uh, I'm really enjoying it. So uh, as a bonus, we have prepared this sake at a warmer temperature as well. And this, again, was also Akiko's recommendation to try it chilled and warm. And uh, I have my warm carafe here, so I'm going to pour this as well. Mine is warmed up as well. So what do you think of the aroma when it's warm? The aroma, I'm not sure if it's the vessel that I'm drinking out of, which is a, a traditional ceramic ochoco. Mm-hmm. But it's much more contained. Like the, mm-hmm. the aroma is much more subtle now. I agree. It feels a little less pointed and a little less expressive, a little more muted. Mm. Um, mm. Interesting. Because I mm. have this uh, huge double bottom glass with a huge mouth. And uh, mm-hmm. it's more floral. Oh. And then mm. and before I used a smaller mouth. Uh, Rideau wine glass. And then I think because of the temperature, I have a little spiciness in finish. So it's like floral mm. and spicy, and it's this very different experience out of same 100 milliliter small glass. I'm a yeah. jar. But I have to say, mine is, I think, uh, lower temperature. It's like a below mm. Nurukang. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, I think yours is more temperature controlled. Mm. Yeah. My sample, I think, is at Jokon temperature around 115 degrees Fahrenheit. Mm. Mine is showing as 112 right now. Okay. My little thermometer. Yeah. So it's a very gentle warming. And I'm still picking up on savoriness and umami in the aroma. But for me, it feels a little like a little more muted and not as in your face Mm. it feels a little softer around the edges when you warm it up and now let's give it a taste very excited Mm. oh wow Mm. wow this is wildly different very very (laughs) different i mean it's still savory and it's still warm and there's still umami but it spreads across your palate a lot wider coats your mouth and it has a longer finish are you experiencing mm-hmm. that as well yeah. so it's a numbing like uh, spiciness on your tongue mm. and this one i mm. would want to have um baked fish like japanese style salt mm. and something very mm. simple oh 
Yeah, like in the autumn, they serve the silverfish that's been roasted. Yeah, they have sama every every autumn in Japan, and it's like the quintessential autumnal dish. Yeah, and I think that would go really well with this. Right, and sama has a bitterness. Like a part of sama has a very like red meat bitterness,、mm. so that would be、yeah. perfect with this kind of spicy, long-lasting experience in your tongue. Yeah, this really has a longer finish to it. The flavor stays with you longer when it's warmed up. Right. Really interesting.、Mm. It's so great. The fact that you can serve the same sake at a, quite a cold temperature, quite a warm temperature, room temperature—it's an amazing superpower that sake has that <laughs> not many other alcoholic beverages have. And we really can't forget how delicious sake can be when you warm it up. Warm sake's got. Kind of a bad rap over recent history, and I think it's time to reform the image of warm sake、mm. as something super delicious. And this sake really proves it. And also,、yeah. you don't have to mill down rice because it's only thirty、um, percent milled away. So、yeah. it's amazing how delicate it can be. With this in-your-face rice flavor, can be so delicate. Too many people are chasing. Super low <laughs> milling rates. You know, I'm down to five percent, four percent. I'll see your four percent and give you three percent. <laughs> I, I like I like to call that stunt samibuai. <laughs> stunt samibuai. But、uh, no, no doubt about it. Those sakes are delicious. <laughs> oh yeah, this just, definitely. This just shows you what you can do when you when you leave more rice grain、uh, in the in the tank. You get. More complex and rich earthy flavors. There's more fats and proteins that get into the mash and onto our palates, and it really adds dimension to the taste. I think.、Mm, right.、Mm-hmm. The one thing I read、uh, on their website is that they don't their milling rate changes、uh, depending on the year because it's based on how the rice was grown. So it's、uh, mm-hmm. about、oh, wow. the focus is the consistency of the taste of sake. Not the number, so I thought it was very interesting. Yeah,、mm. well, after five hundred years, <laughs> I think they know they know what they're doing. I hope. <laughs> well, I mean, well, they finally figured out the design. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> but it seems that they might have figured out the sake a very long time ago. <laughs> and and personally, I I think that it's good for my sake breweries to be focusing on the sake first, and then they can, design can come later. Five hundred.、Right. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful.、Yeah. Well, this has been so much fun. Wonderful tasting with you, Akiko. Now we want to make sure that our listeners can find you, find your podcast. So, can you let us know the best way for listeners to learn more about your show and about your work?、Uh, sure. So you can find Japan Needs. It's on、uh, you know as a podcast. It's on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. And also, you can go to、uh, the Heritage Radio website. That's、uh, Heritage Radio Network dot org. And also,、uh, if you go to kikokatayama dot com, that's my website. There are all the links that you'd like to find. Wonderful, and we'll be sure to link up all of those in our show notes. Thank you. As well as a picture of that bottle. Uh, the 180 <laughs> milliliter bottle of Kenbishi because it is very striking and very beautiful.、Yep. It earned that award after 500、right. years. <laughs> years. <laughs> It's started history now. 
(laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. Mm. So we'll be sure to put all those links into our show notes. Uh, Kiko, thank you so much for joining us. It was an absolute pleasure. I hope you'll stay around for a kampai at the end. Of course. Thank you so much. It was an honor. I'm a huge fan of your podcast. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. Wonderful to have you. Well, I want to thank all of our listeners so much for tuning in. We really do hope that you're enjoying our show. Now, if you'd like to show your support for Sake Revolution, one way you can really help us out would be to take a couple of minutes and leave us a quick written review on Apple Podcasts. It's a great way for us to get the word out about our show. And uh, when you're done writing your review in Apple Podcasts, please go and tell a friend and then subscribe. And then tell your friend to subscribe too. Um, This way, every week, whenever we put out a new episode, it will show up on your device of choice and you will not miss a single episode. And as always, to learn more about any of the topics, any of the people, or any of the sake we talked about in today's episode, be sure to visit our website, sakerevolution.com, for all the detailed show notes. And we know that you at home have sake questions that you need answered, and we want to hear them. Please reach out to us. The email address is feedback at sakerevolution.com. So, until next time... Please raise a glass and remember to keep drinking sake and come pie. Yay! Yay.